Amen. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Oh, it's wonderful. What a special Lord's Day this is, falling providentially on Christmas Eve this year. What blessing upon blessing. We want to extend a special welcome as well to our guests and visitors, and of course, our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. We're looking forward to a wonderful evening of worship tonight as well at our Christmas Eve candlelight service with special music and, of course, the opening of God's Word to raise our affection toward heaven. So be sure to join us for that tonight. Well, as we pause our journey through Mark on this special Lord's Day, would you join me in opening your Bibles to the rich and beautiful Gospel of John? This morning, as we ponder, well, the beauty of the season, it is well that we turn to a most beautiful portion of Scripture as well. While all Scripture is breathed out by God, while all is equally inspired and inerrant, there are mountaintops of Scripture, are there not? There are places, of, places and, and moments of such divine consequence and magnitude that they cause us to stop. There are places of doctrinal truth that, that rise up as precious gems amidst a sea of gems, of, of polished gold amidst a sea of gold. Yes, all are gold and all are gems, but the Holy Spirit has, has elevated certain places of Scripture to inform and to inflame our hearts in unimaginable ways. I hope you agree that nothing less will do on such a special Christmas Eve Sunday. So, beloved, God, what mountaintop of Scripture beckons us to mine its depths this morning? Well, it is Christmas. And that Christmas is found in the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is known for many things. It certainly stands alone and unique among the four Gospels. Yet there are many things that the gospel does not have. You'll notice that there's no genealogies. There's no record of Jesus' temptation or baptism. There are no parables. There are no demons recorded. And of course, there appears to be no Christmas story. There's no manger filled with hay. There are no wise men from the east. But make no mistake this morning. There is more of Christmas revealed in the Gospel of John than anywhere else in Scripture. What is it that we celebrate on Christmas, saints? Now, yes, of course, we have some, some variations that we can offer and expand upon, but in one sentence, what is it we celebrate? It is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Put simply, that is the reason for the season, as they say. Now, that's kind of a big word, incarnation. Most of us have all heard the word. We repeat it in various liturgies and songs. But do we know what it means to be God incarnate? What is that glorious truth, that, that polished gold amidst a sea of gold that we will explore this morning? It is Christmas in the Gospel of John. So with that, let us look to this high watermark of Scripture this morning. Let us breathe this rare air of what is a mountain peak of God's Word. Looking to John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season that you have given us. Lord, that you have deemed to give breath in our lungs, sight in our eyes, Lord, and sound to our ears that we might hear and rejoice anew in this story. Holy Spirit, many needs have walked in the door this morning, all of which you know. Lord, and you have promised in your word, rightly preached and divided, that you will meet every need that has come. So, Lord, we believe that. And, Lord, we ask that you would prepare the hearts that are before us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, around the year 300 A.D. in the town of Myra, there was a man with three daughters who fell on hard times. Now, being destitute in this day and age was a particular trial for this father because that means that he would have no dowry to give to marry off his daughters. I mean, so not only he was, not only would he be subject to a life of need and poverty, but it meant that his daughters would be as well. Now, sadly, when this type of situation occurred in this day, it was very common for women to turn to prostitution to pay their way. And that is precisely what was being considered with the three daughters of this poor man. And it was fast appearing that they considered selling themselves that that may be the only way to ensure their future. Well, as it tends to do, word got around the town that these three daughters were going to turn to this tragic life, seeing no way out. One of the men to hear about the, the plight of these ladies was the bishop of Myra. And this bishop was, well, he was quite wealthy from a family inheritance, and of course he wanted to help. But being a godly man, he didn't want the left hand to know what the right hand was doing. He wanted to devise a way to help without being found out. And he couldn't just drop some money at the front door. He would certainly be seen. So whatever should he do? Well, he thought if he could get on the roof, he could simply drop the money down the chimney of the home and remain unseen. Now this, according to accounts, the bishop did three times, one for each daughter, saving them from this life of sin and slavery. Of course, we know this bishop as Nicholas of Myra, also known as Saint Nicholas. And while the generosity and the, the gifts of old Saint Nick are the abiding legend and legacy of today, Bishop Nicholas should be better known for his later actions at the famous Council of Nicaea, of which he was an attendee. Now, most of you know the story, and no doubt that legend and embellishment have crept in over the centuries. But of course, it was at this council that Bishop Nicholas and another priest from Alexandria named Arius came to famous blows. Now, Arius was a false teacher who was really a key thought leader in debating the divinity of Christ in the early church. What exactly it meant that Christ came in the flesh. What it meant that Jesus was God, pre-existing and eternal. 
course, Arius denied all of these truths. And instead of this, and, and insisted at this Nicene council that, that Jesus was merely a created being, that he was not fully divine in and of himself. Arius claimed that Jesus was actually below God the Father, that he was a created being. Now, this may sound familiar to you, as that teaching is very common. That's a common centerpiece in, in a lot of pseudo-Christian cults. Maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. They all hold a very Arian view of Christ's nature. Of course, it was at this council, as Arius was spouting off his heresy, that St. Nicholas famously punched, or some traditions say slapped, Arius. That's right. Who knew jolly old St. Nick was a stickler for sound doctrine? Indeed, he was. He had part of having a sound Christology, meaning a right doctrine of who Christ is. We must not only understand the eternality of Jesus and the preexistence of Jesus as the second person of the, the Trinitarian Godhead, as the Alpha and the Omega, as the beginning and the end, but we must grasp the glorious incarnation of Jesus. Making Jesus, meaning Jesus, taking on human flesh. Now we tend to focus on the divinity of Christ, and, and rightly so. But equally, we must glory in the humanity of Christ. Jesus leaving his heavenly throne, taking on human flesh, and becoming the God-man. That's actually Christmas, beloved. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than here in our incredible text. So look now with me as John begins in verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now I have no doubt that we could have camped right there on those five words for a month. And fail to reach the bottom of these glorious depths. Our intent this morning is not to do a, a deep theological dive into the incarnation of Christ, into the humanity of Christ, but rather we aim to inform our affections that Christmas may shine even brighter in our hearts, that we may grasp more completely what it is that we're celebrating, how it happened, and why it had to happen this way. Now here, John, in the opening of his gospel, he's He's really giving us an account of the incarnation. In truth, God, uh, John gives us the, the theology of Christmas. We all know the story. But do we know how? And do we know why? We cannot even grasp Christmas without John's account. And the word became flesh is in five words the complete theology of Christmas. Now looking first, saints, what is the word? What is that? What is the word? Well, John has already told us straight away at the beginning, didn't he? In John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Here it is. And the word was God. So what is the word? The word is God. It is the Trinitarian Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, and the Word was God. But look, something is about to, be hap something is about to happen. 
the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, is going to become something. You see our word there, became. But hang on. We should see eyes perking up all over here. Who remembers our, our, adults, our adult Sunday school study on the attributes of God? Many of you were in that study. And wait a minute. I seem to remember something about God being immutable, unchanging. God's immutability. God does not change. So how can the word, which is what? Which is God, become something else? If you become something, you are different than what you once were, aren't you? So how does the immutable, unchanging God become anything? That should be impossible. How does the word become flesh? This Jesus, who was pre-existent with the Father, that was intimately involved in the creation of everything, not only being pre-existent, but that he was co-existent, right? Meaning that he was not just with God, he was God. And by the way, that is why we are Trinitarian, aren't we? How can you both be God and be with God? So this Jesus who is pre-existent and co-existent and indeed is self-existent, right? Meaning nobody gives him his life. He is life. And we stand in awe and wonder at those immutable attributes. How? How can it be that divinity can wrap itself in human flesh? That the infinite can enter the finite? How can God become something he has never been while never ceasing to be what he always was? Jesus Christ at the incarnation, at the putting on of flesh, as the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, at the moment of conception, Jesus was 100% divinity. And 100% humanity. 100% God, 100% man. He wasn't split in two, 50-50. Beloved, there is no subtraction in the incarnation. There is only addition. There is only addition. There are two distinct natures in one person. And they're not mixed together like a blender. They're not intertwined. These two natures are perfectly united while not losing any of their distinction. Now, did Jesus often set aside his divine privilege during earthly ministry? All the time. There were many glories and many privileges that were his in heaven that he left when the word became flesh. He emptied himself Paul tells the Philippians, not of deity, not of divinity, but of privilege. He made himself nothing. He came with no reputation. He came as a slave. And this is incredible. Beloved, the incarnation means that the creator of water would thirst. That the creator of bread would know hunger. 
that the creator of the wind and the waves would be battered by those same wind and waves in a boat. The one who Isaiah declares does not grow tired or weary would fall fast asleep in that very boat. But the very author of joy would weep at the death of a friend. How can it be? How was Christmas possible? Well, if you're waiting for the answer, and I hope you are, the only answer from Paul is given to a young Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. A few verses before that, Paul's calling it the mystery of faith. And what is the first mystery of faith? The first mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh. Manifested, meaning that doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean brought into existence, right? It means to make visible, to make visible. So the how of the incarnation, of the enfleshment of divinity, is a mystery. Paul was as learned as they come. And even the, even the great mystery that is the gospel, Ephesians 3, had been revealed to Paul. But this, the manifestation in the flesh, the incarnation, Christmas, great is the mystery. Great. But beloved, the how is not where we camp. We explore the how only that we might fall down in wonder and amazement. The how is a mystery, but not the why. Why was the incarnation necessary? Why did the word become flesh? This is no mystery. This is revealed in glorious crystal clarity that we might stand amazed at the planning and the mind of God. Why did the word become flesh? Why was it necessary? Why did it have to happen this way? Wasn't there another way? Why must he be Emmanuel, God with us? Might God just remain detached from his creation, aloof and disinterested? Someone known as a deist might believe exactly that. God started it all, right? Like a watchmaker, he, he wound it up, he wound up the universe, and now he just lets it go. No further involvement in the daily life of his creation. But he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Why? The word became flesh. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, God tabernacled with his people, did he not? He dwelt with them through the ark and through the, uh, the ark of the covenant and in the temple. He even walked amongst his people in, in pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Right? It's called a, a Christophany or even a Theophany. That's an Old Testament appearance of Christ. That being a foreshadowing of the incarnation. 
But yet, yet now, in the incarnation, fully realized, in the coming of Christ, John says Jesus, who, who is the Word, not only became flesh, but look back at our text, now he dwelt among us. No longer as an angel of the Lord, appearing in the Old Testament. No longer in a temple or an ark. Not in a Shekinah glory cloud. Not as a pillar of fire. He's Emmanuel. Now, God with us, a babe in a manger. So we will strive to answer the glorious why of that within the time we have today. Because to understand the why is to grasp Christmas like never before. Until Bethlehem, there was one way, there was really one venue that God's people could experience him. There was one way that they could tabernacle and tent with him until now. Why the word became flesh was first, for those taking notes, was first to reveal the Father. To reveal the Father. Jesus tells us clearly in John 17, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Grab hold of this, saints. Apart from Christ, we cannot know God fully. Yahweh to Israel in the Old Testament, was all-powerful. He was Mount Sinai and thunder. Yes, he was love, but he was law. But now, who does Christ show God to be? God hasn't changed. He's still all the things that Israel knew him to be. But when we read All throughout John, when we read Jesus' prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer, what does he call God? How does he address him? Father. Father. When you pray now, how do you pray? We call him Heavenly Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. Guess what? you will hardly find that in the Old Testament. Once in the Psalms, once in Isaiah, and twice in Jeremiah, if you want to know. Why? Did God not want that relationship with with his covenant people? Of course he did. In fact, listen to that rare usage in Jeremiah 3.19. Here the Lord speaks. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children? And give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But they couldn't get that. They couldn't envision that. Father is not who he was to them. Jesus needed to reveal that in the flesh. Here I am in the flesh, right in front of you, and I'm lifting my hands and I'm praying, Abba, Father. We didn't even know or see or grasp God as our Father 
until the incarnation. Until Jesus came in the flesh and taught us to pray. Isn't that amazing? Without the incarnation, we don't have the full revelation of God the Father. Without Jesus, we only know God on Mount Sinai and thunder. Not our tender heavenly Father. Glory to God. Why else? First was to reveal the Father. Next, he took on flesh to be our example. Again in John, John 13, 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Of this, Haynes Jr. writes, quote, He showed us how to pray, how to live, how to interact with those who are against you. How to teach, how to love, how to show compassion. In short, he demonstrated everything we needed to see in order to live this life. How many of us remember those WWJD wristbands from so long ago? Well, the reason that we could even ask that question is because he showed us what to do. But the glories go on from there. Through the incarnation, God has not only revealed more fully, not only would Jesus now set an example for our lives, but now the mountains get even higher. Why was the Word made flesh? Why must He dwell amongst us? It was next to break the curse of the law and to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Means the curse of Adam, our our federal head, could not be abolished by a God aloof. Only a human can substitute for a human. It is the elect of humanity that must be redeemed. A cow can't do it. A goat or a lamb or a pair of doves can't do it. The blood of bulls and rams cannot break the curse. It must be human. The sacrifices of the Old Testament could only cover the curse. It could not crush the curse. But oh then, beloved, what shall we do? What shall we do? If only a human can substitute for a human life, then who could stand? Who could stand? What human could absorb the wrath of God and be anything but dust? Because it is only God that can withstand the wrath of God. In other words... He must be fully man and fully God. That's the glory of the incarnation. Beloved, that's the glory of Christmas. He came in the flesh to break the curse of the law and to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus tells us directly in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
If we stand guilty before a holy God, justice must be satisfied. A good judge cannot let a guilty criminal go. A good judge sees that justice is done. Someone must stand in our place. Someone must pay our fine, absorb the wrath of the Father on our behalf. And thus Paul declares with great finality in Colossians, having canceled out that certificate of debt, that record of debt which stood against us, he's taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. To reveal the Father, to be our example, to break the curse of the law, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Could there be more? (laughs) Oh, beloved, the glories of the incarnation are deep waters. The theology of Christmas is a chasm of beauty. Sadly, it has very little to do with anything our world points to and celebrates this time of year. Next, we see that the word became flesh, that blood might be spilt. Perfect blood, divinity wrapped and enfleshed. There was no other way. Scripture declares that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. There must be flesh that there might be blood, and it must be. perfect, unstained, free from the defilement of sin. Why? Why must it be perfect? Because the one to whom it's offered is perfect. Only perfection can permanently and fully and eternally satisfy perfection. That's Christmas. The writer of Hebrews, he soars in the ninth chapter telling us that when Christ appeared, when he came in the flesh, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All that blood sacrifice in the Old Testament could only atone for a moment. It only masked and covered the sin until a new one arose. Then we must do it all over again. Bring in another bull. Bring in another lamb. Again and again. We needed an eternal solution. That perfect blood could not be shed without the incarnation, without Christmas. Finally, beloved, 
because the word became flesh, because it dwelt among us, because perfection was slain for us, we now have a high priest. And not just any high priest, but a high priest who can sympathize with us. He's laughed. He's cried. He's known hunger and thirst. He's known betrayal and pain. He's been tempted in all ways, yet was without sin. He has walked the path that you and I are to walk. How much greater is a leader who does not only command to to do as I say, but Jesus, having come in the flesh now, says, do as I do, and do as I've already done. How glorious. Listen again to the writer of Hebrews. What sort of high priest do we have today? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, I love therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that means satisfaction, for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. That's you and I. The writer goes on later in chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. And now, beloved, that high priest who has dwelt with us, what does he do now? Scripture says that he advocates for us. He prays for us. You know how many Christians will go through their whole life not knowing that Scripture says Jesus prays for you? He's not someone disconnected, disinterested, and detached from his subjects. No, our high priest, our advocate, came in the flesh. That's Christmas. Look back to our text now. John goes on. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, what what is John speaking of here? It's two things, really. And they're both tied directly to the incarnation. That's that's why John says it. Now, John witnessed first the, the glory of the humanity of Jesus, right? As Jesus in the flesh. Though he was in the flesh, this this God man radiated the attributes of God. He was pure love, he spoke pure truth, he walked in perfect holiness in all knowledge and wisdom. Those are certainly manifestations of the glory of God, are they not? And they beheld them all. They saw them all. 
The disciples witnessed these every day in complete perfection. They beheld that glory. But secondly, John has in view, without a doubt, the glorious transfiguration on the mount. We taught on this extensively back in Mark 9. If you missed that, you can go back on Sermon Audio or Facebook. But you might be asking John, what does the transfiguration on the mount where Jesus radiated in bright white, where he he sparkled like diamonds, where his face shone like the sun, what does that have to do with the incarnation? What does that have to do with Christmas? Everything. Everything. The transfiguration actually reveals one of the miracles of the incarnation. Now put on your thinking caps here, saints. Press in for understanding. Lunch is coming. To transfigure does not mean to change. To be transfigured is not to become something you were not. It means to reveal on the outside what you already were on the inside. Jesus did not change on that mountain. When Peter, James, and John beheld his glory, he was the same going up the mountain as he was coming down the mountain. He didn't get an extra boost of glory up there. Beloved, many have the transfiguration backwards in their thinking. What was the miracle that occurred up on that mountain? Was it a miracle that occurred up on that mountain? Not at all. What they saw on that mountain was Jesus as he is. The miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of divinity wrapped in flesh was not upon that mountain as Jesus' face shone like the sun. Grasp this, beloved. The miracle was the other 33 years where his flesh was able to contain his divinity restraining his glory so as to walk among men. That's the miracle. That wasn't the miracle up on the mountain. This is how he is. This is Jesus in his natural state. Here is the miracle of the incarnation, that it produced a veil of humanity that could cover the glory. That's a Christmas miracle. It wasn't until we saw him radiate up on that mountain where we beheld his glory that we realized the incarnation miracle that's actually been happening his entire life. It was a flesh that could contain deity. If your mind is exploding yet at the genius of God, it should be. Believe me, we haven't even scratched the surface. Beloved, it will take an eternity to grasp the theology of Christmas. John is saying, we beheld. You see that up there? We beheld. In other words, I was there. We have an eyewitness. John was, say this again, the very same in 1 John 1.1. He'll begin his first epistle the same way. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard. 
which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Peter would say the same in his second epistle. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. I was there. Look back to our text now. John goes on to describe this glory. To, to talk about its essence. What is it made out of? What's contained inside of it? This glory that you beheld, John, describe it for me. It's full of grace and truth. I'll stop right there. It was full. We can't go beyond that word yet. Understand, beloved, up to this point, all through the Old Testament, this was, this was a veiled glory. The coming Messiah seen, was seen as a shadow thrown up on the wall by a dim and flickering candle. But now John says, I have beheld it. I have seen it. In Christ, in his glory, both of his natures, divine and flesh, it is now full. Full of what? Grace first. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God that could only come through Jesus Christ. But beloved, grace was a leaking vessel in the Old Testament. It could never hold. God's favor, his undeserved and unmerited love and favor were continually poured out in the Old Testament upon his people. He was willing to tabernacle with them. His grace would find a, a temporary vessel through the forward-looking faith of his people. An atonement through the blood of bulls and lambs. But beloved, as soon as that grace was poured out, it spilled on the ground. Nothing could contain or hold the grace of God. Only one could contain God's grace in its Fullness. Full. Now the child Jesus, Luke 2.40, continued to grow and become strong, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was with him. And what does Jesus do now with the fullness of grace? Well, look down two verses in your first chapter, in your own Bible, John verse 16. Look at verse 16. What does he do with it? For of his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. Paul told the church at Colossae, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Oh boy. And in him you have been filled. So what did he do with it? gave it to us. He poured it out on us in immeasurable amounts, vast rivers of grace unending because finally there was a vessel to hold it and it is full. And it overflows onto his children. That's the hope of Christmas. Full of grace, what else? 
full of truth. We find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the word truth in them one time and two times. That's it. John, 21 times. What does it mean that Jesus' glory, his, his essence, his being, is full of truth? Well, to coin the question from Pontius Pilate, he asked Jesus, what is truth? <laughs> well, there's no need to speculate or to go broad or philosophical. Jesus tells us succinctly, clearly, John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. There is nothing outside of his perfect, infallible, inerrant word that can contribute to the overflowing work of grace in our life. It's all contained here. He put it all in here. All the eggs are in this perfect basket in your hands. It is the fullness of truth. The grace that overflows from that fullness is revealed only by the truth of that same fullness. And that is the word of God. The beloved, what is the theology of Christmas, Harrison Hills? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. One of the greatest hymn writers of all time was the great Charles Wesley. A composer, of course, of over 6,500 hymns, one of which actually we'll sing tonight at our candlelight service. And written in 1739, Wesley, well, he used some language in this hymn that was hard for some to understand. In fact, the original title of the hymn was, Hark, How All the Welkin Rings, Glory to the King of Kings. Now, welkin is an old English word that means the vault of heaven. Hark, how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. Well, 19 years later, a good friend came along by the name of George Whitfield and gave his friend a, a little helping hand, rewriting portions of it and renaming it, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Now, today's version that most sing and is actually kind of a, a hodgepodge mix between the two. But one thing that did not change was the glory of the incarnation within its words. Whitfield's version rings out, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Wesley's version, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The fullness of the word declares that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We know that when the goodness 
and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. When it incarnated, when it manifested in the flesh, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, fully, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. (laughs) Whoever thought there was no Christmas story in the Gospel of John? (laughs) It is glorious. Hear the hymnist. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, means he left it. Born, that man no more may die. Born, to raise the sons of earth. Born, to give them a second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory, fullness of glory to the newborn king. We praise the Lord this morning. We praise him for Christmas in the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed and shown us your word this morning. Lord, Christmas is precious and dear in our hearts. But Lord, we seek to understand it. We seek to know it, Lord, that we might love it more, that we may love you more. Lord, as families gather for this precious time of year, we ask that your spirit would pervade. Lord, that hearts would be healed, relationships mended, and Lord, that we might look to you in all of your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the fullness of grace and truth in our lives this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.